0: Welcome to the Emergency Management Podcast, a show about planning for, responding to, and recovering from emergencies. I'm Stuart Walker, and on today's show, we discuss the Black Saturday fires, which started in Australia on the 7th of February 2009. Approximately 400 fires were recorded across the state of Victoria on that day. A total of 173 people died in the fires, and 2,029 houses were lost. One of those communities which suffered extensive loss of life and property was Churchill. My guest today is Senior Station Officer Gavin Parker from the CFA. In this interview, he shares his Black Saturday story and his first-hand experience of providing asset protection for critical infrastructure and residential buildings. Gavin Parker, Senior Station Officer at Fire Station, or is it Morwell now? Morwell now, yes. Welcome to the Emergency Management (laughs) Podcast.
1: Thanks, it's great to be here. Thanks, Stuart.
0: We could have talked about your work with your scholarship you recently did touring the US on coal mine fires. We could have talked about your work with thermal imaging cameras and introducing that to CFA. You wanted to talk about Black Saturday instead. What's your motivation to want to talk about Black Saturday?
1: Yeah, I guess I would have been happy to talk about any of those other things and and the work I've done with uh, thermal imaging has certainly been an interesting process and I guess something that's going for 19 years now, that's something that I originally thought would have only been six months worth of work and and that would have been done. I've been fortunate enough to have had two scholarships in my time with CFA, one to look at aircraft operations back in 2000 and thermal imaging back then. And uh, in 2016, power industry and and emergency response to coal mines and, and power generation facilities. And even last year, I was fortunate enough to go to California for the fires over in California. But I guess in, in the general conversation, I think sitting through the the uh, the Royal Commission after Black Saturday, one thing that I I really found a, a bit unusual is there was no way of sort of capturing the general sort of stories of people for that event. Some of them certainly were captured in the commission, but there was a lot of other good information and lessons learned that, that could have been gathered. And and I guess everybody on that day or the days following would have had a story to tell and I'm not too sure whether we've ever captured those and I guess uh, we'll be coming up to the 10th anniversary next year and uh, and I'm hoping that you'll be able to go around and perhaps capture some of those stories before they're lost.
0: Now that is a good suggestion I, and I will try and get around to people and so if people are listening and they've got a Black Saturday story they can contact me on the website which I'll give at the end of the program. February 7, 2019, you were stationed at
1: Tarelgon on the day, I assume? Yeah, so it was just a a normal day shift for us. I think it was our first day shift. It was on with leading firefighter uh, Justin Elliott and then firefighter Luke Patterson. So I, I had a really good crew on that day. Prior to that, we'd had the uh, the Delburn fire in the local area, and we'd we'd been fairly involved with that up until probably a, a day or so before the Black Saturday event, and worked very hard to, uh, along with other crews, to to contain that fire and to ensure that it wasn't going to escape on the day. But we'd uh, it was just a day shift for us. We'd already been out to one small grass fire earlier on in the day at Mall and uh, fortunately that was on the. Uh, the correct side of the freeway so that it didn't jump the freeway and taken off and it could have been a, a fairly significant fire if it had have escaped and uh yeah we were uh at the station we we heard the uh, the radio traffic for the uh, the churchill fire uh, i think as soon as they responded they escalated the response and and basically knew that we'd be called so we uh, we got into the vehicle and we're ready to go
0: the weather conditions were something
1: we hadn't seen. I don't think in our history. What are your memories of the weather on that day? Well, I don't like to think I'm that old, but I'm. I'm still. Uh, I can remember the conditions on uh, Ash Wednesday. I think I was 22 when that happened, and uh, it may have been a bit drier from from my recollection in in the local area where I was living back then. But certainly the conditions were were a lot more severe on Black Saturday, and and the forecast for the day was certainly more severe. So. I guess we were knew that any start on that day was, was going to be a significant event. And, and as I said, we were, um, I think we were even fairly fortunate that we were, with the circumstances with the fire that we'd had previously in the day, that it was just happened to be on the correct side of the road to be able to uh, quickly pull that up.
0: And I managed to uh, get on the website of the
1: Royal Commission and pull off
0: some of the stats from the weather on that day. And they said that the Latrobe Valley uh, Automatic Weather Station, 46 degrees, The relative humidity at three in the afternoon was 8%. So they're significant figures for a very bad fire danger day.
1: And for sure. And certainly just being at the station, um, you know, and being outside the station. it was certainly evident that uh, anything that started on that day was going to be significant so uh, and i guess in the back of my mind i was expecting that potentially the delburn fire could escape and that would be probably our biggest risk for the day and, and as i said we the, the crews have done a lot of work in blacking out that fire and and really it's probably a it's testament to that work that was done that that fire um, didn't escape on the day but as I said we uh, we certainly knew that any any fire starting on that day was going to present some significant challenges.
0: You mentioned you're at the station and you heard the Churchill fire
1: start at about 1 30 in the afternoon what were your initial thoughts when you're on route? Yeah well look as soon as the fire started we we had our gear on we were ready to go and, and once they asked for escalation we uh, we got into the vehicle. I said to the guys well we're going to get a call for that and we we we're in the vehicle, and I think we'd probably only gone about 100 metres, and the uh, the pages went off. And by that stage, you could see a column of smoke off in the distance, and and we proceeded towards the fire. And at that stage, even from from the distance, you know, we had a good 15 minutes to drive. There was a significant column of smoke, and I guess the feeling was, well, this is us for the afternoon. You know, that's uh, we it's going to be uh, a, a significant event. What do you say to your crews when you're en route to a job like that? Look, I don't think there was a lot of discussion. As I said, the crew that I had on that day—they were a good crew. Um, I think it was just really, I suppose, the anticipation of actually arriving on scene and and being able to see what we could do when we got there. So, what were your initial taskings when you got to the when you got to the job? Well, it was probably about uh, four hundred metres from where the fire had initially started, and, and on the, uh, the the flank of the fire, on the the northern flank of the fire. And initially there was one home that was under threat from a from a fairly moderate grass fire and that fire was being extinguished and mopped up um, around that particular building. Uh, while that was being done I, I had a look at the map to sort of see what structures were in that local area in the Thompson Road and Glen Donald Road area and, and looking at the you know, visually looking at where the fire had gone and at that stage it had burnt all the way from uh, all the way up to Thompson's road or, or fast approaching Thompson's Road up on a hill my thoughts were that the the buildings along Thompson's road were going to be probably under threat fairly quickly at, at that point the fire was just burning in pine plantation and native forest and as I said it just moved out into some grassland near one one isolated home so I had a quick discussion with the other crews that were there and, and I said to them that we'll go up and check the buildings at the end of Thompson's Road, where the forest area meets the grassland, and start preparing for um, for fire approaching those buildings. At this point, how many trucks were on scene, and was it was there any
0: particular incident management structure in place initially?
1: Oh, look, there was the initial uh, incident management structure. From the initial response, and uh, Steve Barling, the uh, the captain from Churchill, was there. And Steve's, uh, you know, very capable and and uh, and a, a well respected member of CFA, and and being a long term volunteer member. Um, at that stage, the know, yeah, trucks were still arriving on scene, and I think we were probably about the third or fourth truck into, into or tanker into that part of the fire uh, when we left to go up Thompson's Road. We met. Um, we were then sort of being formed into a strike team, and we met the strike team leader at the corner of Glen Donald and Thompson's Road and had a quick conversation to say that we were going up to, to prep the, the two houses that were marked on the map at the end of Thompson's Road. And he remarked that once the other tankers arrived, he would move them up and, and come up himself to, to assist in the asset protection on that flank of the fire. During the
0: firefight, you were deployed to provide asset protections to a communications tower.
1: What were you feeling then as you drove towards that tower? Initially, when we first arrived on scene, I, I looked at the map and, and looked at the, uh, the vegetation that was indicated on the map, the structures that were indicated on the map, and obviously not all structures were, were marked on the map, but the tower was one of those facilities that was marked, and, and I know the importance of the facility and looking at the vegetation around it i thought well really it's it's just probably not a, a safe place to be or or enough defendable space around that structure to really be in a position and once you were there you were going to be fairly isolated so my initial considerations were that we would we would work from the top end of thompson's road as the fire moved up the side of that hill out of the the gully that it was just about to cross that we would be able to do some asset protection on those houses and then we'd be able to move back down towards Glendonald Road, continuing to provide asset protection for other houses as they'd be impacted and in preparation for the, for the eventual wind change for when it came through. So that was my initial plan as a crew leader on one, one appliance. When the strike team arrived, leader arrived, he'd from what I understand, he'd received um, a message from the ICC uh, indicating that it was critical infrastructure that they they needed to be protected or they'd prefer to be protected we had a quick discussion about the vegetation and and I said I wasn't familiar with how clear it was around it he said that he'd he'd just driven up there and back and indicated that there was a a fairly clear area around the structure and and it would be uh, safe to to defend like i also mentioned that once we're there, we probably won't be able to travel back down Thompson's Road because it was timbered on both sides of the road and that was the discussion that we'd had. So pretty hard for you to do a personal size-up of that before you before you got there. Yeah, look, and on the map, I suppose looking at the map and, and knowing a little bit of the terrain, we could look across from Thompson's Road when we entered that forest area where we're travelling up the side of the Gerolang Hill and we could see the fire burning across the gully and the fire backing down, the flank of the fire at that stage backing down towards what was a dry creek. We'd also picked up an additional crew member, um, Brian Membry, who'd been in the strike team leader's vehicle. So we, we then had a crew of four. And as we drove up, we had a, a quick discussion with the crew that we were going to monitor the fire. And if it appeared that it was getting close to crossing the creek and coming up, well, we we wouldn't be able to continue on. And it's, I think it was a distance of six or 800 metres from where the um, the farmland finished and, and you had vegetation on both sides of the road. So it was a relatively short distance, but it is a steep climb. Mm-hmm. So it was a slow trip up the hill and like all of us were watching the, uh, the fire as it was backing down towards the gully because obviously the fire would then make a quick run up the hill towards where we were. And then uh, at that point, we were able to monitor the fire as we drove up until we arrived at the gated compound of the tower. So when you got to the gated compound of the tower,
0: you obviously got a chance to look at where the fire was and also what vegetation management had
1: been done. Were you reasonably confident you are in a safe spot? Look, I'd say my my view then was that we could potentially be at, at a fairly high level of risk and knowing the, uh, the topography, I believed that the fire would, would obviously travel fairly quickly up the hill on, from the flank of the fire. There was also the risk that the fire could come around through a uh, saddle back from where we were, where the houses were, and potentially come up the, uh, the northern or the northwestern aspect of the slope up towards the tower. So there was the risk that we'd either be um, I think initially impacted from the south, and then potentially later on with the with the fire that uh, that may have come up through a saddle, and then come up from the northwest direction. So, I thought there was a fair bit of risk involved, but but we were there, and and I guess we we're in a position there where it was probably the risk of travelling back down the hill was probably greater than than staying. So we uh, we cut the chain on the on the compound positioned the uh, the truck on the, the the northern side of a of a large brick building that's part of the the tower complex and immediately started doing some preparation for for the fire's approach
0: and we should probably say you were you're in a uh, fully equipped tanker 3000 liter
1: yeah with just a little bit athlete. over 3000 liters of water on a on a uh, a tanker so on the initial size up again uh, the compound was gated uh, with a security fence all, all the way around, it, covering a fairly big area. The top area around the, the hill, the tower, there was a brick building and another smaller portable building uh, that was up there. That had been mown, but but the other grass within the compound was was long, gra- long dry grass, um, and then with a, a combination of either pine plantation to the west and the rest was surrounded by native vegetation uh, with a small access road that that led up from Thompson's Road. On the initial size up, I wanted to establish a safety zone that would provide enough protection for the crew, whether we be in the vehicle or, or on foot, and to potentially improve that safety zone. So that was the process that we went through initially when we arrived. So what were some of the actions you did in order to make that area a bit safer? Not only did we have the uh, the gateway that was on the southern side of the compound open, but we also cut holes in the fence on both the uh, the eastern and the western side so that if in the prep work that we were about to do, if anybody needed to quickly go back into into the safety zone, they'd have clear escape routes through the through the fence rather than having to just come back through the gate. I sought permission from the uh, the divisional commander to burn out the fuel on the on the southern side of the building and that was between the compound and the, the roadway. And the, the reason for doing that is I, I we had a fairly good line to burn off and th- that fire would be backing down a hill towards the main fire which we knew fairly soon would be uh, coming up from the from the gully. Um, that permission was given and then at that point we, we started burning out the fuel. And it wasn't a decision that I made very lightly. I was certainly conscious of the fact of introducing new fire into the landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, when there's there's certainly significant fire already around us. But but at that point, it was it was inevitable that the fire was going to come up the hill and um, any new fire that we introduced along that road or track wasn't going to influence the, the fire's behaviour outside of our little area.
0: By introducing that fire in that particular area, did, were you satisfied then that the, the safety zone was going to be enough in order to provide
1: protection? Yeah, look. Certainly, the there was some large um, eucalyptus trees that were right up to the fence line and and close to the building. And I think, and the continuous forest with with obviously the track and the road between. I was concerned that that, that continual forest would would ignite and and impact heavily on the structure. So, once we'd started burning out that fuel, and it was backing down the hill, it was we knew that the fire was coming up the hill. So. It wasn't very long before you know, I think we had flame heights of probably four meters, and you could actually see that fire being drawn back towards the main fire as the main fire approached. So really, from from a means of uh, of reducing the uh, the fuel loading, it certainly burnt out a, a good portion of the uh, ground and surface fuels, and and I was fairly pleased with with how that went. Um, we burnt, as I said, off a track and off a, a small. Um, almost like a game trail initially, and, and it didn't actually cross any of that. So again, we, uh, the fire didn't spread beyond where we'd, we'd commenced our burn from. As the fire came up the hill, it started drawing that our fire back down towards it. And then really it was just a waiting game for the fire to to make its way up to where the houses were, where we were first set up, and there were ha- there were two tankers that were left behind to uh, to look after those two structures, so they were down at that house or those two houses, and we were in constant contact with the the strike team leader, the divisional commander, to basically get a feel for when the fire had impacted on them, so that way we. We knew from the lay of the land that it would go through the saddle and then come up the northern aspect of the slope. And although I, I had in the back of my mind that if necessary, we could, if we knew the fire was making a run up the hill, we could perhaps burn out the vegetation on the north side, again, I didn't want to introduce any new fire until I was sure that it had gone past Thompson's Road and, and was heading up towards us. It wasn't until that stage that we again burned out a small, a very small section of grass in the compound while the fire was making its way up.
0: So at what point did the fire eventually reach your position, the main yeah. fire front? Then? Well, look,
1: we, uh, as I said, we had a, almost a bit of a lull. We initially positioned the tanker on the north side of the building, but once that fuel was burned out, we then repositioned the uh, the tanker back to the southern side where that, that area had been burned out and cleared. We then positioned hose lines to protect the structure and the tower and made ourselves ready. The grass, as I said, was fairly long in the compound, so I was keen to sort of, once I knew the fire was coming up the hill, just just to burn out that long grass. And we were again waiting for for word that the fire had passed the houses down the bottom of the hill and and had crossed Thompson's Road and was making its way up. In the meantime, the, the strike team leader, I guess, was... Probably concerned about our welfare and safety, and was was making inquiries about getting another tanker up. And at that stage, there was no chance of another tanker being brought up there. We had uh, a medium helitack over us that was doing some drops that were really completely ineffective. And and I think after a couple of drops, we we released the aircraft so they could do some more worthwhile work. And and he was able to confirm the burning out that we did really hadn't gone any further, and and was fairly effective later on
0: how long did you wait until until the main fire front got to you I
1: suppose looking back nine years ago yeah. it seemed like a long time but yeah. it probably wasn't that long at all and in fact you know it was we were busy the whole time and 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 I guess it wasn't probably very long at all but eventually we did get word that the fire had, was across the road and, and we knew once it had done that it'd be making a run up the other side of the road on on the north or northwestern aspect of the slope. So we had two people in the tanker behind the building. We had a hose line out each side and, and were able to quickly withdraw back to the refuge of the shelter from radiant heat behind the building if necessary. Once we knew that the fire was coming, it, it certainly didn't take very long for it to arrive. And I guess um, I've been in situations where I've seen fires going from a distance and, and, the, and the sort of activity and noise and, and, the, and the spotting activity that can occur... We could certainly hear the fire coming, but probably I wouldn't say as loud as what I've heard other fires going in the past, Mm. but but I guess I might have been a bit shut down to to the noise and just concentrating on the task at hand. Uh, There certainly wasn't... The inundation of smoke that that I probably would have normally expected. The air was very clear right up until the, the fire approached us. The, certainly, the intensity of the of the wind increased dramatically, yeah. and the uh, and and the noise increased, and we started getting embers landing you know in around us on the the dry short moan grass that was around us, and that was starting up fires on the dry grass inside the. Uh, the defensible perimeter that we'd set up. So the long grass had been burned out, but the short grass was just starting to burn. We didn't want to go chasing fire, so we were just extinguishing those fires within the uh, the defensive area that we'd established. And look, it was only just a, a matter of probably two minutes between hearing the fire. We, we knew that the fire was coming, but then you know, physically hearing the fire, and then probably another minute, we were starting to get a few embers, and to the point where There was basically no smoke and just a few embers to the... It was almost just like a a wall of heat and fire just descending on us. And we quickly withdrew. Uh, The two of us withdrew around to the other side of the building and sheltered behind the building to protect ourselves from radiant heat. One of the main killers in
0: bushfires is people dying from radiant heat. So how effective was it for you to stand behind that structure and protect yourself from the radiant heat?
1: Look, it's not a term that... That we use in Australia about flow paths, you know, in a, in a structure fire, or and and even it's a term that's starting to get a bit of momentum in the US with flow paths mm-hmm. in in a wildfire situation. And certainly, when you're on the windward side of a structure, or, or or out in the open, and and the fire is bearing down, and you are you are in a flow path of of hot air and gases, mm-hmm. and 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 again, if you can shelter yourself behind a building or something of, of that nature you're sheltered from radiant heat and more importantly, you're sheltered from those very high and, and hot convection gases as well. So I think generally people just talk about sheltering from radiant heat, but we've also got to shelter from, from the convection flow as well. And it was quickly just completely unbearable mm-hmm. to remain outside or exposed um, on the northern side of the structure. And, and really, we retreated very quickly mm-hmm. to the shelter of the building.
0: I guess at this point, you're around the back of the building, so protecting yourself from the main fire front.
1: At this point, how confident are you with your decision to, to actually be deployed up there? Well, the condition... Look, for my mind, the conditions weren't too bad behind yeah. the building, but look, looking up, you could just see fire just going over the top of us. And, yeah. and uh, there's photographs that were taken from a, from a house some distance from the Gerralang Hill and they were able to take photos of, the, of basically when we arrived. And, and from people that were, spoke to them, they could actually see us in yellow gear around the base of the tower. And then they, they took a series of photographs as the fire impacted on the tower. And, and look, I'd say the, the flame heights were probably two to three times the height of the, the tower as it went over the top of us. So it was some significant fire activity. But I'd have to say, being protected from the radiant heat and that flow path... Uh, between the building and the tanker, I don't think we were at any uh, any risk at that point. Mm-hmm. But I'd have to say, uh, yeah, when we first arrived, I, I guess my thoughts were you know, we're in a situation where I could see what the potential was mm-hmm. and I guess as the crew leader, that responsibility comes back to me but it also comes back to everybody in the crew as well. So, so we were all responsible for each other's safety and wellbeing but I guess ultimately you know, I'd have to bear some responsibility for the safety and well-being of, of all the people. And, and again, I was probably more concerned when we first arrived than at any other point. Um, it was certainly uncomfortable, but survivable.
0: Buildings burned down from three main reasons, radiant heat, direct flame contact and and the main
1: reason, ember attack. So what did you do to protect the building from ember attack? Well, look, initially we had hose lines out and had a ladder set up on the roof so we'd be able to quickly gain access to the roof. We were able to quickly extinguish a small fire burning on the roof of the building and and the fire, I think, had just gotten under some eaves or got got under the eave on the fairly, and it's a fairly significant, Brick structure where the uh, the tower is. The fire was also burning in the cable rack, which was about one point two meters wide, coming from the tower into the building. So there was fire burning inside there. But we were able to uh, to extinguish those fires on the on the building and the cable rack. We uh, we pretty well used the last of our water, all well, but probably a few hundred liters, to extinguish that fire, and and ended up with a dry powder extinguisher to completely extinguish it. At that point, we probably used up the majority of our water. Um, And I guess, you know, it's always said that you maintain a reserve of water. Well, everything was burnt around it. So, you know, there was nothing left to burn other than the building that was still burning and and, and stuff that was still smouldering. So um, we extinguished all the fire on the building and then had to force entry into the building. And and I was reluctant to force entry because it is a fairly significant door on it earlier on because of the risk of damaging it and and I suppose affecting the integrity of the building. We had to open that up to make sure there was nothing burning inside. And and in doing so, we had to use a tow chain to actually open the door. We couldn't open it with with the hand tools that we had. And that left the door in a condition where we couldn't completely close it to an airtight seal. The problem we had then was knowing that the wind change was going to come through and that would blow embers to, again, impact the building potentially more significantly than the, the fire that had just passed. So the, the embers then would perhaps be blowing from a different direction. So we then had the, the concerns of securing the building. We knew there was a wind change coming, whether we we remained for the wind change to pass and and make sure the building was still okay or to make our way back down Thompson's road when potentially we could be facing a wind change mm. so what was your next step then well in the Royal commission there was a lot of a con- lot of concern over warnings on wind changes and and who received the warnings and how timely those warnings are look I'd have to say from my point of view, I was well aware of when the wind changes were coming. We'd we'd had updates of other townships, you know, all the way back to, I think, Packenham or Cranbourne that they'd passed through. So we had a very good idea on when the wind change was coming, which, which sort of influenced our decision to remain for probably another 20 might have been 20 30 minutes for the wind change to pass before we made our way down down the road because we knew that there'd be significant winds with that change and that had the potential to bring down trees and obviously blow embers from a different direction on the uh, on the structure. So again, we we had communications with the divcom to let them know that we the the structure was was still in place. Uh, we contacted uh, SP Osnet, the, uh, the owner of the structure, to let them know that the structure was in place because once we got into the building, we, we had communications via phone with them. And then uh, we waited out the wind change. And I guess from, from our vantage point, looking back towards uh, Caligny and Terrelgan South and all those areas, we could see the, the fire behaviour across numerous hills off into the distance as the wind change came through and just seeing... Uh, it's just it, it's almost impossible to describe the the conditions of what would have been a a, cigar, a cigar-shaped fire within a wind change coming through bringing it through on such a broad front over numerous hills and and valleys through that area and and um and and i guess my thoughts were well the, the people that were in that area are, are now copping you know, what we were copying a good 20 minutes or 40 minutes before but after that we we made up we'd we'd basically made up we had already made up all our gear and then once the the wind change came through and eased we then let the uh, diffcom know that we were going to proceed back down thompson's road so we uh, we we secured the structure the best we could and, and continued down Thompson's Road, back down to where we'd been originally.
0: And certainly for those people listening, the significance of that, that wind change, the southwesterly wind change in our part of the world, we've seen from Ash Wednesday to Black Saturday, is the bulk of the structures that are lost by wildfires and the bulk of the lives that are lost by wildfires are after that wind change.
1: Look, and that's certainly the case here. Look, I think eleven lives were lost on the day with the uh, the, the Churchill or Geraldine fire, um, and sadly, one of them was I think probably about six hundred metres from where we were. There was a house that wasn't marked on the map, and, and I believe a lady there it had a heart. Her and her husband were in a house there that was destroyed, and I think she she died possibly as a result of a heart attack. But I'm not I'm not too sure. And there were certainly um, other fatalities close by where we had initially started, and certainly over towards Caligny where we were we were able to see the uh, the fire pass through. And I guess that's something when you you think back, you you're you're watching an event unfold, and you sort of think about the the consequences. But it's really later on when you actually hear the human toll and the the material consequences. That's that's when it really. I suppose uh, strikes home. When we were looking at it, we were looking at bush burning. Mm. Yeah, you know, we can't see the houses, we can't see the you know, the homes that are under threat at that point, um, because we're you know, we're looking at a fairly long distance, but certainly uh, we knew what would be happening in the area where we'd already previously been working, and we're certainly well aware of the impact that, the, that that change would be having on those structures at the same time. So that's one of the reasons we were very keen to get back down to Thompsons Road to to assist down there.
0: And was it easy then to get from the top of the hill back down Thompsons Road?
1: No, well, look, we knew that there'd be the possibility of trees being down, so we we had a chainsaw on the on the, uh, the tanker. We we had the chainsaw removed from the from the locker and had it ready to go on the deck of the, the truck. Uh, we all travelled down in the in the crew cab of the tanker. And I think from memory, I think something like eight or ten trees that we had to remove on the way down. Fortunately they were all fairly small trees, but they were but those trees that needed to be you know cut and, and removed. So we made it down to to where the initial houses we'd set up to do asset protection on and and found some where crews had been, had been burnt over. And they departed um, and we were able to to mop up around those houses. I think with the absence of anybody there to to do that work those those structures would have been lost. There was still material burning up against the side of the house which we were able to uh, to extinguish and remove
0: mm. and, and that probably shows the importance of it's it's all very well been providing asset protection whilst the fire front's coming through. But unless you're there for the number of hours after the fire front's gone through, we'll still lose structures.
1: Yeah, and look, and that was... There was certainly, as we continued down Thompson's Road, uh, we were able to, to do some mopping up around structures. Then we, we got back to Glendonald Road and, and Shellhaven, which is another court... Uh, there were certainly houses that had been lost and, and unfortunately one with the, the loss of life there was and that was also near the location where crews had been burned over uh, some of those houses were completely destroyed there was just nothing left of them. Uh, there was others that were had still had burning material around them that needed to be extinguished and potentially left unattended would have would have resulted in those structures burning down as well.
0: As you look back now on your experience on Black Saturday, what advice would you give to other crew leaders who might be faced with providing asset protection?
1: I think the the advice that we give to landowners on how to prepare their property, we need to listen to that owner advice ourselves. So we need to make sure there's a good defendable space around the, the structure because without a defendable space, we can't expect the landowner to look after it and we really can't do that ourselves the other thing I think we need to do is you know, we need to make sure that that it's it's going to be safe to be there so often i see in in other instances as a strike team leader or as a, d- a divisional uh, commander we'll have strike teams out doing asset protection but they they'll go for a drive around but they, they don't get too involved in prepping structures and i think there's a lot of work in that space if if we have time we should do what we can to prep a structure and 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 in the case of Black Saturday, some of our prep work was just closing doors and closing windows that had been left open by the, uh, the homeowners. And it might be quickly moving some some furniture or, or items away from the structure. So there's a lot of work that we would advise a homeowners to do that, that as a fire service we can do. Mm. We can also um, utilise some of their equipment, use their garden hoses, use some of their equipment to, uh, to have that ready. If the uh, the owner comes back to look after it, or if for some reason we have to come back later on and our resources are stretched, so if it's suitable and available, have that out ready to go rather than, than tying up our own gear for, for some of those things. But certainly, I think one of the main things is people run the risk of chasing fire, so they'll set up a defendable space knowing that they've, they're not going to stop the main fire as it passes through. So all you can do is defend the area around the structure that you're protecting. The fire starts spotting and you start chasing fire away from the structure. You'll get drawn into that Mm -hmm. instead of the task at hand. So sometimes if you know you're not going to stop the fire, you may have to let it go, let it pass you and just worry about that 20 or 30 metres around the structure that you can defend. And sometimes it's very hard for people to do. Mm -hmm but can use a lot of water and a lot of resources in chasing fire that you, you know you're not going to stop. I think the other thing is um, if we've decided to prep a structure and stay, that's one thing, but we've still got to have good escape routes and safety zones planned out and protect ourselves from radiant energy. So that's positioning the appliance so that we're not in front of the structure. We're, we're protected, you know, let the structure protect the, the appliance as well and the crew and, again, have safety zones back at the appliance or at a suitable area where we can protect ourselves. If necessary, if circumstances change, you might be expecting the flank of the fire and then if a wind change is imminent, it may get to the point where we're going to protect the structure up until the point where we're expecting the wind change. And then if, if that's the case, you may have to depart and pull out of the area and go to a safer area. And, and again, you, know, you need to have the truck ready to go so it's backed in, can, can leave quickly so there's there's some of the main things so I guess some of the other things is sometimes it's not going to be safe to be there so we may be able to prep the structure or at least have a conversation with the residents and then remove ourselves to a safe location wait for the main fire front to go through and then go back and and, uh, and mop up around those structures or and, and save what we can and, and I think the thing is you can't be everywhere, you, so you might have to do almost like a, a triage. You know, assess what can be saved, what can't be saved, and work on what can be saved. And and and, and it's going to be a hard thing to do to uh, to drive past a building that that might be uh, partially involved in fire if, if windows are broken and those sorts of things. It's you're you're probably very limited in what you can do with a tank full of water. So I think there's a there's a lot of lessons and a lot of lot of work that probably needs to be done in that area and and it's something I think as an organisation we could improve on.
0: Gavin it's been fascinating talking to you today about your experience on Black Saturday thank you very much for your time and
1: thanks for joining me on the Emergency Management Podcast. Yeah look and thanks Stuart it's it's been interesting just reflecting on it and something I probably haven't given a lot of thought to I put a I put together some notes after it, and if anybody wants a copy of those notes, it's almost in like a little PowerPoint presentation It shows some of the photographs that were taken from the, the house down the bottom the hill. If you want to email me, i will be happy to, to email that on. It probably uh, paints a better picture than me talking of, of what actually happened. All right, we'll, we'll put your email in the show notes, Gavin. We might even be
0: able to put some of your uh, images up on the website so people can follow along and, and look at the fire as it tracked across the uh, across the map. Thank you for listening to the show this week. If you want to find out more about the topics discussed, go to emergencymanagementpodcast.com. Please also subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. You can also write to us at feedback at emergencymanagementpodcast.com. I'm Stuart Walker, and you've been listening to the Emergency Management Podcast. Bye for now.